Great to be with you again. Uh, it's been a while. We also have our 50th anniversary in, uh, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania at the Calvary Fellowship Homes. And we have not been associated with them quite as many years as we have with Fellowship Bible. Your pastor gave me a, a, a difficult assignment. He asked me on the phone some uh, months ago when we talked about this, what have you been doing? Uh, what have you been preaching on? And uh, so I gave him a list of various things that uh, we had been doing in conferences and in uh, one day uh, stands and so on. And uh, he picked one. He said, what I would like you to do is repeat what you did there in this particular conference. And uh, I had been working in Acts 13 and 14 and presented to that particular congregation at that conference uh, where I was the continuity speaker, uh, this message uh, in six segments. <laughs> did you bring uh, some blankets? <laughs> hmm. Anyway, um, I have discovered over the years that it is much easier to make one message into six than to make six into one. But I'm going to try, do my best. We move into Acts 13 uh, with this little event mentioned about the church in Antioch. Uh, you just sort of read over that, don't you, when you see a city named like that. What kind of a city was it anyway? Or was it a hick town? Uh, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, only after the city of Rome and the city of Alexandria. The capital of the province of Syria, which uh, is not the country of Syria. This was just a, uh, a province. Um, to give you some idea as to the size of it, the city of Lowell, Massachusetts, in 2010, when the census was taken, had 106,519 people in it, more or less, I suppose. Antioch was about five times that size. Now, you've been in Lowell. Uh, just think of a city five times the size of Lowell. It's a big place, isn't it? Uh, and uh, that's where this took place. Uh, there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, and you read their names, find it difficult to uh, pronounce some of those names. Hmm? Uh, different kinds of people, probably very important people, and maybe some people who may not have come from such an important background, but equally important in the sight of God, prophets and teachers. Let me talk a little bit about that city from another perspective. Uh, because it is important for us to remember this. 
the city of Antioch had a, a suburb that was known as Daphne. And it was named for a nymph, uh, one of these mythological characters of Greek uh, tradition. Uh, it was a luxuriant suburb, as one of the books that uh, I want to quote from here said it, books by Rex Miller, written in 1940. A luxuriant suburb of Daphne, a shrine to the heathen's false god Apollo, serves as a focus for festivals which have never been surpassed in sinfulness and vice. Into this beautiful but profligate and vicious city uh, we came, Barnabas and Paul, and joined the growing band of true worshipers who, almost unnoticed in the hectic rush of this mad scramble for riches and amusement, were nevertheless engaged in affairs much more momentous than even the most notorious of its citizens. Um, it was a beautiful place. And these fellows, they moved there, they wondered that such loveliness could be combined with such appalling sin and vice. Well, it was a crummy city. Antioch. And that's where it happened. That's where these prophets and teachers found themselves. Uh, we notice that they are really preachers and, and uh, what I've decided to call doctrinaires. They were the teachers of, of the doctrines of God's word. And when the Holy Spirit spoke to them, as we have just read, uh, while they were ministering to the Lord, in verse number two of Acts 13, um, he said, separate me, uh, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. Uh, and there was an immediate positive response to this. Uh, there was total dependence on God in prayer and fasting. And they responded uh, by, in verse number three, laying their hands on them. They ordained them. And then they, they sent them away. So something about the current conditions. Let me move to a second thought. There were some prerequisites for ministry that are very obvious as you look at this particular passage of scripture. First of all, it is a church-related ministry. It was a church that did this. A miserable environment in which this church happened to find itself, but it was a church that did it. It was they, their leadership, who heard the voice of God who responded to the word of God, ordained these men, and let them go. It, it says here, uh, they sent them away. But what this really says is that they, they let them loose. They loosed them. They were fastened to the church, but they let them go. Uh, it's a church-related ministry, the church at Antioch. It was ministry-motivated. Uh, they were going to do this to the Lord. 
they were already ministering unto the Lord. Ministry motivated. It was God-oriented. Uh, he called them and set them apart. The Holy Spirit worked in them. And I like to suggest to you that it is vital to remember that it was work-focused. Uh, notice in verse number two that the Holy Spirit said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Uh, it's important to keep in mind that it is work that is involved here. I, uh, I'm going to go on a little rabbit trail here in a moment to the book of Colossians. And uh, a passage at the end of, of chapter number one. Uh, it's probably something that will come to your mind again immediately when you hear these words. The Apostle Paul is talking about the Lord Jesus, the hope of glory, calls him and, and uh, with respect to this wonderful message, Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach in verse 28, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. It wasn't a question of being selected. It was every man that they were after. And then he emphasizes uh, how he's going to do this through the end of, of this chapter in verse 29, where unto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Uh, the, the number of very work-related uh, uh, statements and, and words themselves, uh, whether they be uh, verbs or, or adverbs or whether it would be just a noun. Whereunto I also labor copiously, striving, uh, agonizing, uh, according to his working, uh, which works in me uh, in a mighty fashion, in, in great energy and, and dynamo. Uh, that's the idea of work. And this is what these men were going to be doing. Now, I'd like to remind you that the true measure of a church's missionary mindedness is not its missionary budget, nor the number of people it supports abroad, but by the proportion of its own members who recognize that because they are saved by Christ, they are meant to be sent by Christ. Did you get it? Uh, I'll repeat it later on so you won't forget it. And if there's anything you want to remember about this, that would be the statement. Well, not my statement. I just simply quoted it from Horace Fenton, an old friend who has long since gone to heaven. 
Not only do we talk about the prerequisites for ministry and that it is church-related and ministry-motivated and God-oriented and work-focused, but there's also the suggestion of authority in this ministry as we read in this passage of scripture. Notice in, in the fifth verse that they had a helper, uh, as we just read. In the old King James, it, it says minister. The word that is used there uh, really is an interesting little word. It has to do with being an under oarsman. I mean, a fellow who sits in, in one of those triremes of these ancient ships with three rows of, of, uh, of oars in them on both sides. And these guys were sitting there pulling these oars. Well, actually, they were doing it like this because you would sit on the right side and over here you would do it on the left side of that ship. And, and uh, there would be a fellow up above you who would do the same thing and a fellow up above him who would do the same thing with a real long oar. Uh, and these warships would move uh, relatively fast there in the Mediterranean Sea. An under oarsman, he'd be sitting all the way at the bottom and he had a miserable job to do. Now, most, think, most people think that uh, these must have been slaves. Well, they were not, necessarily. They were freemen who were hired to do this, and they were paid for this. Uh, and, um, uh, but it was a very pleasant job. Uh, and they really didn't even know where they were going. They couldn't see anything. And uh, they couldn't say, well, I want to go in the opposite direction. I'm going to pull that oar in the other way. Uh, no, they just had to go along. As the guy said up there on the top, pull, they pulled. And they went, wherever that might have been, all at the same time as a team. And here was this man, John Mark. You remember who that was. Uh, he didn't do very well in this particular connection. He, he quit in the process. Uh, after a little while, he, he left them. Uh, we read about that later on in the passage. Uh, fortunately, the Apostle Paul gave him uh, another second chance. Many years later, perhaps, we read about it in 2 Timothy in chapter 4, uh, where he indicates to Timothy that he should bring John Mark along. But in the meanwhile, he had a major argument with his colleague, Barnabas. Uh, we won't have a chance to talk about that here very much, except to remind you of the fact that that, that argument caused these two men to split in two different directions. And Barnabas took uh, John Mark with him to Cyprus. We don't hear about them afterwards at all anymore. And Paul took uh, Silas with him, and they went off uh, being commended uh, by the church there in Antioch. Um, and uh, we noticed that uh, Mark just sort of fell apart. We don't know what happened to him. Uh, there was authority in ministry because these men who were in charge also were in charge of their fellow under oarsmen. Uh, because I say fellow, because the Apostle Paul called himself also 
an underoarsman later on uh, in the book of Acts in chapter number 26. This authority that these men had was delegated to them. It was not, not inherent or intrinsic. It, it was given to them by God himself. Uh, this is always the case, of course. Uh, we are never in a position where we can call the shots. It is God who is in charge, and we simply follow his orders. Uh, it starts with God, and it ends with him. Uh, but we notice here in, in Acts 13 that um, uh, the leaders prayed and fasted, having been told by the Holy Spirit to do uh, what he wanted them to do. Uh, take a look at Acts 14. We're going to go back and forth a little bit there. In uh, verse 26, I'd like to emphasize in Acts 14, 26, that they, they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. Uh, you need to focus on, on his grace in life and in ministry, even when things don't seem to be going so terribly well. We had a missionary years ago, his name was Tom, and he worked in, in Holland. I had met him a number of years before in Michigan. He pastored a little church there, and uh, he told me in, in the process of our time together uh, that he, uh, he had been a missionary uh, for few weeks or something like that in the Caribbean. And he had had a wonderful time. And he said, I, I would, I told the Lord that I would do this uh, for the rest of my days if he wants me to do that. I'm available, he said. So I, I said to him, I said, well then, why don't you go? Oh, he said, uh, okay, I'll go. And he did. And he went to Holland and served there for some years and established a little church. And um, when it was on its own, he was ready to move on and try it again. Uh, he did not stay in Holland. Uh, he went to Ireland. There was some reason for that. Uh, Tom's last name was Murphy. And he thought maybe he would fit in better in Ireland than he did in Holland. Try it there. And uh, we were with him on occasion. In fact, it took his place. He was the field leader there. We took his place and, and lived uh, for nine weeks, I think it was, or something like that, in, in Ireland, in his little house while he was on furlough. And uh, oh, that ministry was tough. There was hardly any response. And he struggled with this for years until he could no longer do it. And uh, he decided to stay right there and, and retire there in that little house, little cottage. And uh, 
there was hardly any response. Well, Tom never gave up, even though he, he didn't do very well in the church planting thing. Uh, he just moved around in the town in which he lived in a, in a little village nearby, uh, Castle Island, it was called. And uh, Kathy and I used to go to Castle Island uh, to do our shopping. And we got to know that place a little bit, but uh, not as well as Tom did. He just walked around there every day and uh, uh, handed out tracts and talked to people wherever he could. And uh, had a, a wonderful opportunity to, to be of, of some blessing to people, but they did not respond. And a couple of years ago, I was asked to to go to Ireland and, and do his funeral, because he died there. And um, I arrived there, the field director came and picked me up at the airport and we drove directly to the funeral home where they had already begun. And I was amazed to see so many people there. The place was filled with people. And uh, I spoke there that night to these people. And more of them came in all the time and others went out. Uh, and it was just circulating there. Hundreds of people. I couldn't believe my eyes. I'd never seen anything like that in Ireland. Uh, well, the next day we went to the church. We couldn't do it in, in our own little building, which was just a storefront. Um, we had to rent a bigger place. Uh, I think it was a Methodist church or something like that. Uh, got that building. It was filled with people. Then after a while, they were standing outside by the open windows and uh, all over the place, people. Uh, then we went off to the cemetery. Uh, they thought there were 150 people there at the graveside. What an opportunity. I'd never spoken to so many Irish people all at once. Uh, and Tom Murphy uh, was more effective when he was dead than when he was alive. But I tell you, it was not without work. Because he worked until his dying day. That's what it's all about, friends. These people in Antioch were commended to the grace uh, of God for the work which they fulfilled. All right, so let me emphasize the fact that the church loosed them. Uh, the Spirit sent them. But the church let them go. Uh, this was not an easy thing to do because it just so happened that the Holy Spirit put his hand on the most valuable people that were there in that church. 
not the people they could get along without so easily anyhow. So to the surplus. No, the Holy Spirit said, I'll take Barnabas and Saul. Now they're pretty good, pretty good choice, wasn't it? Hmm? Barnabas, who was the son of consolation, remember that's what his name means, and uh, he made a great impact uh, on the church in earlier days. You see, the people in uh, at least some of these people in Antioch had come from other locations. Uh, some of them were in Jerusalem earlier, in the days of, of Stephen, when he was stoned. You recall, people began to scatter to other locations, and uh, some of them went to Antioch, as we see in these earlier chapters in, in the book of Acts. Uh, and uh, they began to to move into this new church that was beginning. Uh, it was in, in Jerusalem that there was a connection as well with, uh, with Barnabas who had been there and, and uh, the church had sent him uh, to Antioch to see if these things that they'd heard about the city of Antioch were really true, uh, if that church was doing as well as it did. We notice also that the church simply let them go, even though they were the most valuable people they had. They may not have known exactly how good Paul would be able uh, to be in, in, in the level of ministry that was before him um, and how effective he might be, but God knew it and took him along with Barnabas. Paul's approach indeed was a spirit-filled approach. If you take a look through this passage that we have before us in Acts 13 and 14, we see something of the fact that he was spirit-filled and he always consistently pointed to relevant scripture. He never uh, did forego that kind of opportunity. Um, I, I noticed that, of course, all of this is Old Testament material that he quoted. He knew it very well, and he passed it on and reminded these people in this Jewish synagogue, and we just read about that uh, as we looked here at the wall a moment ago, um, that they they filled that synagogue and people asked questions though, and then these Jews eventually became very jealous, envied uh, this, and, and uh, decided uh, that they would give him some problems. But we, we find that Paul's approach was always take the word of God. No great surprise. Uh, I notice uh, a very direct approach on the part of Paul. Look at verse 10 of chapter 13, where he speaks to, uh, to Elymas, the sorcerer, and lets him have it, calls him 
uh, a man who was filled with, with subtlety and mischief. There's a wickedness uh, in, in this man. Now, child of the devil, he didn't mince any words. But in the process of, of all of this, uh, he quotes the word of God and tells him uh, what, what had happened. Uh, I acquired several years ago a, a book um, that's been on, on my shelf and uh, interesting reading entitled The Death of Truth. Perhaps you saw it, The Death of Truth. The sad title. Um, and the book is right on target. Truth sort of died in the world, but not in God's eyes. The Lord Jesus said that the word of God is truth. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. It's the only truth we have. And Paul provided it freely. Authority in ministry. I suggest that there is an emphasis on the accountability in ministry as well. In Acts 14 and verse number 26 through 28, and we already looked at this in terms of the grace of God, uh, to which they had been recommended for the work which they fulfilled and completed. Um, and we also see that uh, the apostle uh, gave a review of everything that had taken place in verse 27. They came back to the city of Antioch and, and uh, reviewed all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles, not only to the Jews, but now to the Gentiles as well. Why did he tell the church about that? Well, I think it's because of the fact that he recognized that he was accountable to that church. Because it was from that church, and you see that in the very same passage, from that same church that they had been commended to the grace of God. Um, I suggest, first of all, that the Holy Spirit deals with the leaders in the church. If he doesn't, it's probably because the leaders ought not to be leaders. But here are church leaders who are in the right place. They're praying, they're fasting, they're preparing their hearts for the Spirit of God to deal with them, and he speaks to them and, and tells them what to do. Uh, and so these leaders become involved, and they take from among their own number and let them go. Even the very idea of ordination has something to do with that concept of loosing someone. Because in ordination, uh, you lay hands on a person 
uh, in a sense, to identify with that person and to inform him and those who see it and those who are involved in it, the fact that uh, these people are going to represent you. Uh, you're not going to go along with them. You're going to let them go. You're going to take your hands off again and loose them. And they go and do the thing that God has given them to do. So in or the, the very the very fact and the very uh, the very action that relates to ordination, you put the hands on on that person and then take them off again, because they're God's people, and they will do what God wants them to do. You let them go. You loose them. Uh, there are specifics of accountability, obviously. You get this wonderful thing of questionnaires. I noticed there were some questionnaires in Sunday school that Al Spires uh, uh, handed out. Um, we as missionaries, we get questionnaires from churches every now and then. And they ask some very strange questions sometimes. Um, as bad as a, did you, did you get your act, uh, act together for tomorrow? <laughs> get your taxes all set. You know, these miserable questionnaires, all these, you wish they wouldn't ask all that stuff. Well, sometimes we get a questionnaire from a church, uh, some things that I wish they wouldn't ask. Um, how, how many churches support you? And how much is the total? And how many individuals support you? And what's the total? And do you have any other income from any other source? If so, how much? And it will go on and on like this, all of these details. You just think it's like a tax form. And you fill that in and you send that to these churches. Um, uh, there is accountability. I'm not making any suggestions to you that you do this for your missionaries. Please don't do it. <laughs> Uh, we got enough of that stuff. Um, and there are some questions, actually, that some churches ask, I, I think, are really none of their business. Uh, but by and large, uh, it's perfectly all right and sensible. And I think it's, it's a question of, of, yeah, you really have to answer to us because we sent you. That's okay. There's a review of everything that God had done, we see in Acts 14, to everybody, to the church. And I'd like to emphasize the fact that it is God who opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. It wasn't Paul and Barnabas who did it. Oh yeah, they were used by the Lord to do it, but he did it. And I suggest also uh, that perhaps it's time consuming to give that kind of a report. I notice in the last verse of Acts 14 that they abode long time with the disciples because it took them a long time to give all this information. Um, 
many times when we're in that pulpit, we wish I had a longer time to tell you about it. And we can't do that. This particular case was time consuming. They were commended to the grace of God for the work to which God had called them. And it was he who had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. There are patterns of leadership. The leadership of Paul and Barnabas uh, was obvious throughout this entire passage, Acts 13 and 14. There was planning involved in all of this. Um, did you notice, you just sort of read over this in the beginning of Acts 13 here, um, verse four, they being sent forth by the Holy Spirit departed unto Seleucia. Well, why did they go to Seleucia? Uh, that happened to be the place where the ships would anchor, and it was from there that they sailed. And they sailed, in this particular case, to Cyprus. Have you seen something about Cyprus in the news in the last week or so? Hmm? Cyprus was an important place today, and it was a very important place in those days. And that's where they started. Uh, they had planned it that way. They didn't just get on the ship to say, well, let's go wherever you want to go. No, we go to Cyprus. And they went to, uh, to start there to, in Salamis and preach the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They had planned it that way. Uh, there's much I can say about planning. I don't have time to do it. Uh, suffice it to say that they began to plant churches in the places where they went. In terms of leadership, there is an emphasis on recruitment. They recruited Mark who later on, though he fizzled at first, later on became the man to, uh, to write the gospel according to Mark. Wonderfully used of God. Recruitment is an important part of leadership. Uh, training shows up in the passage. There were disciples. He began to disciple them. Uh, finances come up. Uh, how do they support themselves? Uh, everybody can financially help. Discipline shows up uh, very shortly after this in Acts chapter 15. Many other emphasize, uh, emphases on, on the patterns of leadership. I said earlier, and I'm going to say it again, that the true measure of a church's missionary mindedness is not its missionary budget, nor the number of people it supports abroad, but the proportion of its own members who recognize that because they are saved by Christ, they are meant to be sent by Christ. How do you do that? I think that it ought to be done in the way the Bible 
suggest right here in Acts 13 and 14, where the leaders of the church get together and pray and wait upon the Spirit of God to tell them whom to send, whom to let go from their own number, from their own people who sit in these pews and don't look at some people who can be easily missed. Go for the very best that you have and let them go. There are many places where they are severely needed. More so than here. You know, the church at Antioch was a church in a location that was just as miserable as Massachusetts. Yes. And I might as well say that it's no different in Pennsylvania. Churches are churches. States are states. Wicked places from which God by his grace sends people into all the world. And I wonder if you could put Fellowship Bible Church right in that very little statement that my friend Horace Fenton came up with. The true measure of Fellowship Bible Church's missionary mindlessness is not its missionary budget, nor the number of people it supports abroad, but the proportion of its own members who recognize that because they're saved by Christ, they are meant to be sent by him. That's what missions is all about. And you can read about it in Acts 13 and 14. I suggest that when you go home, you take a look at that passage again and see how it might apply to you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for uh, the wonderful grace of Jesus. We thank you for saving us, for speaking to us, for dealing with us, for calling us, for giving us your gracious promise and hope. And we pray that we shall be responsive. And by your grace, loose those people who should serve you, perhaps abroad, perhaps next door, but serve you to your honor and glory. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.